Lord, open to our understanding this vital passage of Scripture, this passage that is essential for our health as a church. We pray that even through these words directed to your people about their relationship together, that even by these concepts you would draw to Christ those who know him not as Savior, those who are not in Christ and have not received yet that grace. We pray that you draw them to this light as they look at the beauty of your plan for your people. But for those of us who know you, Father, may we be willing to be corrected. May we be willing to learn what we do not know. May we be encouraged by your Spirit, where we are weak to be strengthened, where we are downcast to be lifted up. And I pray that you'd encourage this congregation as we consider your word and your will for us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. A key aspect of maturity is the capacity to exercise accurate self-assessment. Immature people often fail to realistically judge their own talents or importance in comparison to others. Now sometimes this is just simply humorous. The four-year-old boy who is convinced that he's a superhero. He's not imagining it, he really is a superhero, just ask him. Or his six-year-old sister. She is convinced that her new athletic shoes make her the fastest human being on the planet. She doesn't have time to race everybody, but if she could, she would win every race. That's cute, isn't it? Why is it cute? Because they're four and six. That same boy is now age 14. And he pouts at the end of the bench, convinced that he is the best player on the team. None of his coaches, none of his teammates, none of the opponents that he has ever faced think that way. But he is certain that he is an abused victim. That the coach and his team do not recognize that he's the best player there is. And so he grows bitter and withdrawn. Well, it's not cute anymore, is it? How we look at this young man and say, this is immaturity. You need to grow up. Or his sister, now 16, she's convinced that she deserves the lead part in her high school spring musical. She can't sing, she can't act, and the director is doing her a favor to allow her to muck up a few of the group singing parts, but she is certain that she's a talent nobody recognizes, and so she too pouts and whines and ends up quitting. She needs to grow up. She needs to rightly assess herself with those who are around her, doesn't she? We might even take the same brother and sister and just say that they have avoided in their schooling every hard course because they're convinced they could not pass. It frustrates their parents. It frustrates the school counselors because they know these kids have some academic capacity. They're really pretty gifted kids. But they won't take a hard course out of fear. 
Again, you're frustrated with this 14 and this 16-year-old because they're not exercising the maturity of accurate self-assessment. In the first scenario, they've estimated themselves way too highly. And in the second scenario, they don't recognize what they can actually do. What is ugly is when we get stuck at 14 and 16. By God's grace, with maturity, we grow. We grow to see ourselves for who we truly are in Christ. But if we stay stuck at 14 and 16, there's a lot of trouble. Pride can lead us to overestimate our capacities, leading us into all sorts of conflict and frustration. And whether it's fear or self-pity or just plain laziness, We can underestimate our capacities, and that leads to a life of futility. As human beings, just as decent citizens in any social setting, we need the maturity to exercise realistic self-assessment. Self-evaluation that is connected to reality and to maturity. Now this reality does not evaporate when we become followers of Christ. What changes is that we have become new creatures in Jesus. What changes is that we have become now a new humanity under our new Lord and new Adam, our new head, Jesus Christ. What changes is that sin's power has been broken in our lives as His followers. And so what radically changes is the very nature and purpose of all of our self-evaluative conclusions. All of that is radically changed because of our union with Christ. In Adam, lost in the self-centered fog of human depravity, we can only judge ourselves for self-centered, self-glorifying, or rebellious ends. But when we are united to Christ by faith in His death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, we become the recipients of our Savior's grace. And when we become the recipients of His grace, that changes everything. It changes the way that we see our world. It changes the way that we see ourselves in that world and how we relate to others. So the picture we need to bring to this text in Romans today is the picture of the risen, sovereign Christ who rules from heaven's throne. We need to bring here the picture of Him pouring out His Spirit upon His people as He relates to them in grace. We need to relate to this concept, this passage, as we see Jesus building up His body, of which we are individual members. So we have to think outside of the box of our little, isolated, self-evaluative, stuck-on-self orientation and lift it higher into what the risen Christ is doing in this congregation, in our lives individually. What is the will of the reigning Christ? What is the work of the reigning Christ? In light of our union with Him, The Apostle Paul, now in this practical section of the book, exhorts us, first of all, 
that each church member must exercise proper self-evaluation of our spiritual gifts. Each church member must exercise proper self-evaluation of his or her spiritual gifts. Very simply, we see the imperative there in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, I say to you, Eden Baptist Church, so to speak, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. There's the imperative that really controls this section. That phrase, think with sober judgment. This is the positive side, to think with sober judgment. So the connection to what precedes, you see the word for there in verse 3. Generally, we land on that pretty hard and say there's a hard connection to what comes before. Here the for seems to be kind of taken lightly as almost just a transitional thought. There is some connection to verses 1 and 2. This is part of the transformed thinking of the Christian life, that we learn to maturely assess ourselves, evaluate who we are, how God is working in our lives. But you notice there too, just without missing it, that he speaks of the grace that is given to him there, and I think that Paul subtly here asserts his apostolic authority. The grace given to me is, as we see this phrase in other passages in Paul, a reference to the authoritative apostolic position that he has in the church. But notice how he puts it. It's grace. Not something I've earned, but something that God has given to me. I speak to you with the authority of an apostle as a recipient of grace. Let's talk now about grace. So I speak then to everyone among you, verse 3. And I say negatively this, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. To everyone. That is, every member of the body of Christ is the recipient of grace from Christ that will help equip his body. As we position ourselves to do that, as we seek to determine how best to do that, Paul counsels us against the danger of pride. Don't overestimate who you are. That's my counsel to you. How the church will function best, don't overestimate who you are. Now, the pride of overestimation hits us in more ways than one, doesn't it? It may be the arrogant type of pride. I'm just better than those around me. My gifts are greater. I'm superior. Or I see myself as way differently than everyone else does, and my estimation is way above everyone else's. That's one way. The other way of pride is the over-depreciation of my gifts in a sort of spirit of self-pity. I can't do anything. I'm no good. This church doesn't need me. I would suggest that that is probably rooted in pride. It wants to be seen as more important than others might see you. Don't let that pride influence the way you relate to other believers in the assembly. The positive here in verse 3 then is, but to think with sober judgment. That is sober judgment. The Greek word means reasonable, sensible, sound judgment, accurate self-assessment. The maturity we've been talking about here. So we connect it then to verse 6, having gifts that differ, let us use them. 
That's, that's where he's headed in this, as we've read the passage already. But having gifts that differ, let us use those gifts. So here's the assessment. The sober judgment is how God has gifted me to bless his people, his assembly. Let's render sober judgment. And let's stop. Look around. We are the body of Christ. We are the conquest of the risen Savior who has chosen to place us in this body. Those particularly who have covenanted with this assembly, the sovereign Lord is part of that. If we are going to function as Christ intends, we must know one another. If we're going to function as Christ intends, we must exercise proper self-evaluation as we relate to one another and determining how Christ has equipped us to serve and to serve with our brothers and sisters in Christ. What Paul is saying to us by instruction here is, Christian, church member, pride can really mess that up. It can cause great trouble as we wrong, if, where we wrongly evaluate ourselves. Now, I, God only knows how desperately I work to not use basketball illustrations. <laughs> I don't use them often, but i got to jump in here. Because I don't know a sport, and somebody will fill me in later, I'm sure, but I, I don't know a sport that better illustrates this kind of idea. It's a unique game. It's a game in which any player can do virtually anything. It's not the case with football. An offensive lineman is not going to take the ball and throw it to someone. He's going to get called for a penalty if he does. He can't do that. But in basketball, everybody can do everything. And that's what makes it such a unique team sport. Because in that sport, on that team, everyone must assess his or her unique role. And pride is a killer. Now, there's an awful lot of pride on basketball teams. I know that. I understand that. But where a team functions at its best ability, pride is not in the equation. What's in the equation is each member understanding this is my role. This is my skill set. This is how I relate to the other players such that our relationship means we are a better team than we would ever be individually. So there are players that need to pass up certain shots. And they need to defer to other players in that same situation, sometimes who might even be taking a more difficult shot. But that's what's best for the team. There's other times where passing up a shot is actually selfish. It's proud because it's saying, I don't want to fail. I don't want to be seen wrong. I don't want to let people down. But you should, in that spot, shoot. So, and we understand how pride messes the team up. You have individuals who think they're better than they are, who don't assess how they relate to the other team, teammates, and they really harm the team. And this is where Dan, sitting in his basement watching a base basketball game, is yelling at people and driving my family nuts. I don't understand why I get so mad at individuals. But I, you see that pride not understanding where that. And that's why I like to watch college. 
because pro is just, they're done. You know, they're just done. But the college guys are trying to figure this out. And while I get mad at the guy, he's 18 years old, he doesn't understand how he fits. It's such a beautiful analogy to the church. Maturity says, here's who I am, here's who I'm not, here's how I relate to this team. And if I can press this analogy to its bitter end and go way past where I should, you you also see how players change their relationship to the team as they mature and grow and other guys leave. That's why, again, I like college. Everybody's getting out of here within no more than four years. You see the guy who played one role as a freshman plays an entirely different role as a senior. And we plead with players to figure out who they are and work within that system. That is an illustration of the church of Jesus Christ. It's just an illustration, but it's how we need to think about who we are to render sober judgment. The end of verse 3 says, each according to the measure of the faith that God has given him. We have an interpretive challenge here with this phrase. This could mean the faith which Christ gives to all who trust the gospel. The faith as the soil from which all spiritual gifts spring. That's the most natural way to read the word faith. It's the least natural way to read the word measure. So let's flip it around. It could secondly be the different amounts of faith that Christ gives to church members for the exercise of different spiritual gifts. That's the most natural way to read the word measure. There's different amounts measured out, but that's a really strange way to read faith, that God is giving more faith to others. And it's difficult to read the idea of faith and have it being essentially equal to gifts. Faith and gifts are not exactly the same thing. So we have a challenge here. There's a hard decision with commentators differing, and it's going to affect how we take the phrase uh, in prophecy, the reference to prophecy in verse 6. So all I'm going to give you here is my leaning. My leaning is, I'm taking it this way, that Christ measures out saving faith to each of us equally. And then our individual gifts spring from that shared faith. So when he says, render sober judgment, that is accurate self-evaluation as you relate to one another, each according to the measure of faith, that is each according to the saving faith that Christ has given, that he has assigned. Again, good people differ on that interpretation. But in any, at any event, we see the rationale in verse 4. For, as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. This is one of the radical transforming realities of our life in Christ. When you trust Christ as Savior, you become a member, a body part, so to speak, of Christ's mystical body. Together then, we become in a local place the embodiment of Christ. We become the exemplar of Christ in this location. The human body has many diverse members that all work together in a mutually beneficial and harmonious way. We understand that about our body. We don't catch balls with our face. 
We hope not to. We don't walk on it either or walk on our elbows. We, we have different parts that have different functions. Many parts, one body, all in sync, diversity creating an amazing unity. Likewise, when we are born again, we are united to our head, Jesus Christ, and become then members of His body. In a larger, intangible sense, certainly, but then localized in a church body where we function as a member under the headship of Christ. Jesus then, here's what we need to grasp, is Jesus is part of this, obviously. He's orchestrating this. And He gives to each member serving capacity that is designed to build the church up, to edify its faith. When we get this concept, an American Christian, listen, listen, listen. This blows apart that it's all about me and Jesus. Just me and Jesus. We walk together, I do my thing, me and Jesus, and that's all there is to it. Other Christians can come in and come out and it doesn't matter, it's me and Jesus. Paul doesn't know anything about that mentality. Such individualism does not find itself in the writings of this apostle anywhere. What it is, is this. I am united to Christ through faith in the gospel, I'm united to Christ. I'm incorporated then into His body. I am positioned to function with other members of the church. Where, that phrase, where we read that phrase, individually members who belong to one another. I think that's how we see it. We are, but we belong to each other. We function together. I am in Christ in part that I would carry out that function with His people. If we truly see this reality then, if you're grasping this, you're understanding, saying, yes, I see that, I know that's the case. Then you're going to see that comparison with one another is not only inevitable, it is important. It is vital. Like that player on a basketball team, I have to play in relationship with with the rest of the team. I need to know how I fit into the equation, how Christ intends me, intends for me to play this game by way of illustration. So it's not only inevitable that we compare ourselves in some sense with one another, but it, it is vital. And as we make that assessment, we must render sober judgment, accurate Self-evaluation is his point. Secondly, then, each member must exercise proper self-evaluation of his or her gifts. Paul then says each church member must employ his or her spiritual gifts for the edification of the body, assessing it and then applying it. Verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So simple, so straightforward, but obviously we should put them into use. Now those of you that have a Greek New Testament open there, you're not going to find the, the verb use or the imperative use. But that's the right way to understand the text. 
So even though it's not there in the Greek text, that is how, with ellipsis, it is to be understood. And I think then it's right for us to emphasize what a, a word that's not actually in the text. But that's what he's driving at. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, that is, we have different grace gifts from Christ, we then are to put them into use. Now, notice there the words gifts and grace. This is where language transfers hard. Gifts and grace, they don't sound like at all to us, but that's actually the same Greek root. The risen Christ then sovereignly graces upon us functions of grace by which we build up the other members of the body. The risen Christ pours out His grace upon individual members saying, run with this grace and build up my body. In this way, we each contribute to the unity and the stability of the church. Through the diversity of gifts of grace, we build one another up in the faith. And so see grace flowing from the risen Savior to you as a follower of Jesus. Those of you who are truly, genuinely born again, this grace flows from Him to you and is meant to be poured out for your brothers and sisters in Christ in unity, in teamwork with one another. These gifts differ. They differ not so much in their value as much as they differ in their distinct purpose for the assembly. So by way of application, then, he gives what we might say are some illustrations. This is not an exhaustive list of the gifts that Christ graces upon his church, not by any means. So don't think, I've got to find the gift in this list that is me. Um, I, you know, I don't think, I mean, there's a lot of gifts that aren't listed, I would believe, because we look at the list and they all differ and there's some crossover and there's some gifts that are maybe more um, official or traditional in some sense. But I think there's evidence that there's many different types of gifts. I mean, I don't think there's a gift for karaoke or something like that. We don't just make things up that uh, here's the gift. But there is a gift that you may not find on this list. I think that's important to determine. But let's look at what he does mention by way of example. Verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now, there's, this, there's words he's not filling in here, and we need to fill them in. So he's saying something like, if the Lord has given you the gift of prophecy, then prophesy in proportion to your faith. That is, in, or, and really, it, that word your is not there. It's actually the faith, which fits my earlier interpretation. So it is prophesy in proportion to the faith. So we return then to that interpretation of verse 3, prophecy in keeping with the body of doctrine that constitutes the faith. So the gift of prophecy in the New Testament church should always be in sync with the apostolic doctrine. Now we could spend a month of sermons on the topic of prophecy. But suffice it to say here that prophecy is not preaching. What I'm doing right now is not prophesying. There's some relationship, 
in the aspect of calling people to obedience that it was the prophet's task. But this is not prophecy. Prophecy was an, a spontaneous revelation of God's truth that the prophet communicated to the congregation. That prophecy had to synchronize with Scripture. If it did not, the prophet was false and the supposed prophecy was bogus. Against some of our gospel-believing friends, and they are friends, I believe that the utterance of the apostles had to be equally weighed and judged. I don't see a major difference between the apostles and the prophets on this, in this regard. As if the prophets were a hit-and-miss bunch and the apostles always spoke the oracles of God every time they opened their mouths. I think we have evidences to realize that any time an apostle spoke and any time a prophet announced the revelation of God, that it always had to be judged. It always had to be assessed. Does this match Scripture? People can say anything. They can be driven by what is not the Spirit of God. So I, I think there's always a necessity to discern what an apostle said in that day, what a prophet said. And against some of our good friends, I do not personally believe this is a persistent or now necessary gift since we have the final and sufficient Word of God in complete and written form. With good people, we differ on this point. But the point is that as that gift was used in the Roman church, it was to be used in proportion with the faith, in synchronization with the faith delivered once for all to the saints. But in any event, however we interpret that idea, those who were gifted were to speak the words of God. You're given the grace of God to speak the words of God. What are you supposed to do? Speak the words of God. Reveal that revelation. Secondly, verse 7, if service in our serving, that is if God, if Christ has poured out upon you the gift of service, then you are to use that gift in service of the body of Christ. Service speaks of meeting the needs of other members by giving them our time, our talents, our resources. I think the spirit that we put over this is John chapter 13 and Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Jesus pours out that same grace upon individual members in the assembly. They are gifted at seeing and meeting the needs of people. This is a grace from God. Now you might have been somebody who was given that way, given to that way of thinking and that way of service before you came to Christ, but now in Christ it is sanctified and it changes its whole purpose. You see needs. You see people in trouble. You see things that need to be done. And you love to get after it and to get it done. It's a gift of service. Just in one quick example, we've seen a clear display of that recently as we've served hundreds of people for lunch after three funerals in three consecutive weeks. If there was not a gift of service here, I'd be dead. I, 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 don't, I couldn't do that by myself, right? But people come together and say, that needs to happen. I can get after that. I can help here. And how many servants have if the one who teaches in his teaching. Teaching. All of us are teachers of God's truth to one degree or another. 
parents are teachers of God's truth. When we witness to an unbeliever, we are teaching God's truth in that sense. But in view here are especially those who formally teach God's truth to the assembly. Those who have been uniquely gifted to build up the body of Christ through the instruction of God's Word. I'm teaching right now, but I'm not teaching right now in the way that Paul is talking about. Does that make sense? There's teaching that's happening here. That's not what he's talking about. In the New Testament, teaching is systematic instruction in and passing down a biblical doctrine from one generation to the next, from one disciple to the next. It deals with the interpretation of Scripture. It deals with what others have thought and taught, and it applies the Scriptures on the basis of a whole view of Scripture. So I'm not formally teaching here. I am teaching, but not in this sense. In this sense of the term, teaching takes place most fundamentally at Eden Baptist Church when? At 9.15 on Sunday morning. That is the teaching. Now you may be providentially hindered from attending the teaching on Sunday mornings at 9.15. But I do think we need to take this to heart. As a member of this assembly, if you choose not to attend Sunday morning Bible class, you are choosing to bypass this grace which Jesus bestows on His church for her growth. Again, there may be reasons you cannot, reasons you should not. We understand that, and we each need to assess that. But Jesus is risen and reigning and pouring out upon His church a gift of teaching, intending thereby to use those so gifted to build up the assembly. I would not look at that and say, that doesn't matter to me. I would just warn you against that, lovingly, with a smile on my face. But to say, think about that. That's God's grace intended for you. Is that unimportant? Again, there's so many qualifications. Yes, there are other times when God's Word is taught in this assembly. And maybe they're more convenient for you. But yes, you can gain biblical teaching at other places outside the life of the assembly. And find, in fact, you can find better teachers in other places, undoubtedly. And again, it may not be feasible for you to benefit from that particular time of teaching in this assembly. But in this local church, in this outcropping of the body of Christ, the doctrines of God's Word are systematically taught to all ages at 9.15 on Sunday. That's just this church in this place at this time. So that teaching flows to God's people by God's grace for their edification, and for the glory of God. Now I realize, I'm fully awake here, I realize that it is becoming increasingly common for gospel-preaching churches to look at teaching as a marginal, 
take it or leave it supplemental option. 915, if you just use that as the example, I'm not saying that has to be in every church, but the 915 hour here is seen by many Christians now like they would look at a junior college course that they're auditing. There's no real skin in the game, monetarily, academically. I can go or not, I can benefit this. Or maybe a, a community education course. That's what's going on at 915. It's a community education course. I can take part in it or I cannot take part in it. There's two reasons I think I'd like to push back against what's becoming a very common thought along those lines. The first is this. Teaching is a spiritual gift from Christ. Let that sink in. The teaching in the assembly is a spiritual gift that Christ is supplying to His church. Secondly, 1 Timothy 4 and verse 13, we'll look at that in a moment on the slide here, but that would lead me to conclude that teaching is a vital aspect of the regulative principle of worship. In other words, teaching is a feature of our worship that has apostolic authority. And we see that in the next phrase of the one who exhorts. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who exhorts should give himself to exhortation. Exhortation is something we all do as well as teaching. But I believe what Paul has in mind is what I'm doing now. What we call preaching. I think is what he means by the word exhortation. Notice this verse in 1 Timothy 4.13. Paul says to Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. It's interesting how the NIV translates this. Until I come, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture. That's the same. To preaching and to teaching. I think what the NIV is seeing here, the translators are seeing here, is that the exhortation is what we have traditionally termed preaching. Now, there's debate on that, of course, but I think the exhortation is a formal feature of the life of the New Testament church. Not only what we do after church breaks up and we talk to one another, but also what takes place formally within the worship of the church. And as this verse indicates, this is part of the apostolic counsel to us. We need to hear the Word of God read publicly. We need to devote ourselves to the exhortation or the preaching of the Word, which is a different way of filtering truth than is teaching, which also needs to be an important part of our life together, on one level or another. So sermons... The exhortation, let's say this, is that formal feature of the life of the church by which one encourages and exhorts and summons God's people to understand and obey God's Word. I realize that I'm pushing you right now. Some of you, I'm, I'm not thinking about anybody, but I'm probably pushing some of you to the point where you're pretty irritated with me right now. Now that can happen in teaching, but this is the point of exhortation in part, is to say, here's what God's truth reveals. Here's the need to come in line with it. 
That's exhortation. Sermons teach God's truth. But a sermon does so by stirring God's people out of spiritual lethargy and to joyful obedience to His will. The next, the gift of the one who contributes. This is to be done with generosity. God grants to some the grace of giving uniquely. All of us are called by God to give of our material resources, but there are people that God gives with a unique divine joy in giving to the cause of Christ. Such people are to give liberally. And I can say within this assembly, there are those individuals who do that. And we ride on their shoulders in some ways because God has graciously gifted them uniquely with that desire to give liberally, generously, and significantly. Now, I don't think the amount is the issue. There are those that are gifted in giving that give very little. The widow that put her small coin in the treasury at the temple may well have been gifted in giving. It's not the amount, but it is the orientation, the liberality, the the generosity with no ulterior motives. The one who leads with zeal. The one who has received from Christ the grace of leadership is to lead within the assembly with zeal. Points again, I think, to those so gifted. It certainly includes elders. It is not exclusive to elders. Leading others in Christ's church, then, is no picnic. It is hard work. I think Paul certainly understands that, and that's why he knows that it's very tempting to lose heart when you lead people. Don't grow weary in well-doing, he says. Carry on with zeal. An energy supplied by the Spirit as we trust in Jesus for strength and we trust in Jesus for wisdom to continue to lead people forward. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. It's a reference to extending care to the needy, to the vulnerable and distressed, including especially to the infirm. Wow, if Beth and Dan had opportunity to see this gift at work in this assembly since November 18, with cheerfulness, those who have served us in our trial. It's alive. There are those of you putting that grace into effect every day, extending mercy to those in need, and with cheerfulness. That is an attitude that's not sullen or begrudging or dismissive or thinks it's going to get something out of this, but with a spirit of simple joy. It's my privilege to have mercy on you in your need and to help you. There's a very simple call here, isn't there, for us? And a lot for us to align our lives to. I mean, if you came into the assembly today saying, I've got it all figured out, I, I, I hope I've disappointed you. I don't have it all figured out. We're working through this together, how Jesus wants us to function as a church. And there's a lot of decisions that have to be made, a lot of things that need to be put into place, and we're figuring it out. We always will be. But I hope it stirred you to think, I must assess myself on the team of the local church properly, 
Not overestimate, not underestimate, but realize God is calling me to use the gifts that He's pouring out upon me through the risen Christ for the building up of His body. It's not hard. It's a lot harder to do. And yes, every one of us needs to make progress. So that basketball team that shows up and, the, and they say to the coach, we've got it all figured out. We don't need to make any improvements. We're, all, we're, the, we're the team we are. It's just the way that it is. You'd say, no. We all need to grow and mature in these matters. But pressing that way, just for a few more moments, if you'll indulge me, I, I think it would be wise just to answer a few questions that come few statements that maybe you have or a combination. Somebody says, I'm a member of this church, but I do not relate to other members in a way that makes any difference. I'm not exercising any gift that is directly contributing to the health of this body. I'm not gracing this assembly with edifying service. Let me say to you, first of all, you may be doing more than you recognize. That is always possible. In fact, I think if people would sit down with me and say, I don't have anything to do with the health of this church, I would, for most of them, be able to convince them otherwise. You're probably doing more than you know. Maybe you're providentially limited. There is a difference between contributing nothing, however, and wanting to contribute more. God knows. Be at peace if you're providentially hindered. But maybe you simply need to change course. And I might speak to a few of you along that way and just say lovingly, you need to change. You need to change your orientation to the people of God. We're all there. We're all needing change. Join us. Don't read this sermon wrongly. This is not a pastor recruiting you or shaming you into involvement in the church for the sake of the church, for the sake of numbers, for the sake of activity alone. That's not what's happening here. It's a pastor exhorting you to realize who you are in Christ and the potential of your God-given purpose in this assembly. That's what this is. It's a loving call to find your joy in God's kingdom and for His glory. Second, I don't know what my gift is or what my gifts are. I have no idea what to do. Again, you're most likely exercising graces you don't know you're exercising. But I would encourage you, don't obsess over that. There's so many people that go after this as self-evaluation on steroids now. I'm going to look at myself and find a bunch of evaluation documents and try to figure this out. You don't have to figure it out. God's not hiding it from you. What you should do if you say, I don't know what my gift is. I don't know how I can help this assembly grow. I have one word of counsel to you. Love people. That'll take care of everything. Just love people. Go after them in care, in compassion, in edification and encouragement. Don't obsess over the matter. Just love them, meet needs, and serve. You will find your way. The Spirit will make certain of that. 
maybe you need to seek counsel. But this is a community project. Don't go home, close the door, and isolate yourself and look at your navel and try to figure out what your gift is. It's a community project. Join in to the life of the church, and it will become evident to you, and it will become evident to others. And where their assessment might differ with yours, be at peace with that and grow. Third, I'm not gifted. There's little I can do. I compare myself to others and I just get discouraged. I see the gifts that other people have. And as I do the self-evaluation, I can see what they can do, but I don't know what I can do. It just makes me depressed. Again, you're probably accomplishing much more than you think. But in any event, discouragement is no answer. Gifts and, the gifts and calling of God are by His sovereign choice. Be careful that you do not question God. There are various parts and places to play this game. I say that by way of illustration. It's not a game. It's our life. There's various ways to play it. Be at peace with the coach. Be at peace with the sovereign Lord. Francis Schaeffer said, So well, in a sermon given this title, he said, In God's sight, there are no little people, and there are no little places. There are no little people, and there are no little places. Only one thing is important, he said, be consecrated persons in God's place at each time, at each moment. You have a part to play. You might be a timpani player in the symphony. You got one drum roll every 84 measures. You're not as important in the gifts that God has given you as that first chair violin. Man, if you play the right way, it fits everything and makes the symphony, symphony work. And if you play... On measure 83 or measure 85, you mess up everything. Right? There's no little people. There's no little places. I have gifts. Another. I have gifts, but no one seems to notice. I am gifted by God, but nobody seems to know. Well, that's going to take some counsel and some work as to why you think that way. It's probably not true. But the danger is that you're not rendering sober judgment. That's a possibility as well. If it is true, counsel can help you work through that. And I would again encourage you to see this as a community project. Number five, I know that my spiritual gift, I know what my spiritual gift is, and I'm content using it as I do, and I really don't want anybody to press me. Be careful. Tremendous damage can be done by those who think that they have a gift they don't have. Further, spiritual gifts can be used in ways that prove self-serving. And further, gifts need to be worked out in each unique assembly at each unique season of a church's history. Oh, I've seen the beauty of this from our church of 20 adults and people who did things back then that don't do them anymore 
That's just grace. That's the, that's the beauty of understanding. Maybe at one place, that's what I should do, but not now. Or the other way around is people have come forward to take on responsibilities that we've never addressed before. I think it's wrong for those who insist that the life of the church must conform to their gift. That's not thinking corporately enough. I think it's wrong for those who insist that the life of the church must conform to the way they use their gift in a previous church. That's forcing one church to mirror another out of your own self-centered purposes. But I think it is right in what God calls us to, to love the church you are covenanting to serve here and now, who you are on that team at that time, at that season, and just love people. So the big picture here is the sovereign Savior, the risen Lord who loves His church, sovereignly assigning gifts, works of grace to be lived out in community for the building up of the church. And I believe that your maturity and your joy will be linked in part to the sense that I am pouring my life out for the good of the cause of Christ in a local place with people I have chosen to love and covenant with as members of the body. So our calling is proper assessment and it is joyful service to Christ, for Christ, with one another. Let's pray. We are grateful, Lord, for your kindness to us in this instruction. We acknowledge that we have work to do each one of us individually, to assess and to think and to grow in our ministry. Keep us from unfaithfulness in our response. Encourage us. Where there's been rebuke, Lord, may it be received with grace. Where there's been encouragement, may there be those willing now to strengthen their weak knees and to run again. For those outside of Christ, Lord, may they realize that the ultimate grace that has been poured out is the grace of Jesus Christ who took our sin and died on the cross to pay the penalty of our crimes. Who rose from the dead and is in heaven today pouring out gifts of His Spirit. Lord, draw us to Christ, to His glory. In His name we pray. Amen.